As the kids make their way out, take your Bibles if you would and turn them to John chapter 17. I want to continue our examination of the life of Jesus in order that we might be able to walk as Jesus walked. And we saw last week that if we're going to walk as Jesus walked, then we must live a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit as exemplified by Christ during His earthly ministry. And so... We talked about this, we said last week, the reality is the foundation of the matter is that believers must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Before the the Holy Spirit can have any influence or impact on your life, you must be filled with it. So you must possess it. That is to say, you must have trusted Christ for salvation. And then Paul told told the church, as we looked last week at Galatia, that they are to be being filled with the Spirit. Meaning that the influence of the Spirit on your life is to be being built up and is to be a regular part of who you are and what you do and how you function. And and we said that as, as the believer is filled with the Holy Spirit, not quenching it would be the contrast of that we also looked at last week. As we live a life that is filled with the Spirit, we in turn will be led by the Spirit, be empowered by the Spirit, And be anointed by the Spirit. And again, don't be intimidated. Sometimes we see uh, fancy words like anointed. And uh, it means to be appointed to a task. And that's different for everybody. But the reality is, is that if you're in Christ, there's a task that's been appointed to you. And uh, you are to be being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. That you might be led and empowered by the Holy Spirit to complete the task. To fulfill your anointing, if you will. It's not easy. To walk as Jesus walked in a world that, as we've seen, and you know, recently, again, even last week, it's not easy to walk as Jesus walked in a world that hated Jesus. It hated him 2,000 years ago, and the world still hates Jesus today. And so if you're going to follow Jesus, then you're going to have to actually follow Jesus. And part of that means you've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit if you're going to walk as Jesus walked. And this morning, one of the things that Jesus did in the Spirit that you and I are called to do in the Spirit is pray. And Jesus prayed in the Spirit. And um, and we see that because, or we know that because of some of the things that we see about Jesus. One of the most famous prayers of Jesus, for example, is when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying. Uh, you, you probably know the phrase he said, you know, as he's praying to his father, he says, If there be any way, let this cup pass from me. Nonetheless, not my will, but yours. Okay? And so as we think about that prayer, Jesus is praying, being led of the Spirit, that if there be any other way, okay, not just, it's not, that's not about his death, okay? It's ultimately about the wrath of God being poured out upon Jesus. Jesus being the subject of God's wrath. That way sin could be atoned for. And so as Jesus prays, he says, Father, if there be any other way that your wrath could be poured out, that'd be great. But just in case there's not, God, I submit myself to your will. And it is your will that will be done, Father. You do not pray that the will of God would be complete in your life if it's at great expense to yourself if you are not praying in the Spirit. 
When we're filled with the Spirit, we can pray things like, God, I don't know what this situation presents. The options may not be great. But I do know, God, that I have to walk this road. I have to encounter this situation. And so, God, I'm praying for this. But I will surrender myself to your will, whatever it is. And I want you to know, no, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Sometimes that happens. We'll talk a little bit more as we get towards the end about praying in the Spirit and how we see Jesus do that. But there's a number of facts, right? Just kind of general information about Jesus and prayer that maybe are helpful for us to consider. Maybe not. Maybe they're just fun trivia points at some point in your life. Maybe another day. But uh, just a number of general facts as it pertains to Jesus and prayer. 33 times in the Gospels we see specifically mentioned that Jesus prayed. So 33 times. Uh, Jesus prayed at the beginning of his earthly ministry. In Luke chapter 3, verse 21, we read this. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. So at the very beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus, we see him uh, praying. We see him carrying out the action of being in prayer. We also see Jesus praying at the very end of his earthly ministry. Later on in Luke's gospel in chapter 3, beginning of verse 44, we read this. It says, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus earthly ministry that lasted approximately three years began with prayer and ended with prayer. And 31 other times in those three years, the Word of God specifically references Jesus praying in between that first example and last example. And the point, I think, is clear. When it came to prayer, it was a part of every major point of the life of Christ. Okay? Any and every situation that was vital and significant, we see Jesus praying for. Or we see Jesus praying during. Or we see Jesus praying about. Prayer is a vital, vital part of the ministry of Christ while he was on this earth. But it wasn't just about the frequency, right? It wasn't just about how often Christ prayed. It was also about... The reality that with his life during his ministry, he emphasized the importance of prayer. As he insisted on praying, and there's a couple of ways, I guess we might say, not just the frequency, but a couple of ways in which Jesus prayed. Like, again, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 5, verse 16, we see just in a general phrase, Luke says, but he would withdraw <clears throat> to desolate places to pray. So sometimes when Jesus prayed about significant situations or circumstances, Jesus prayed in in desolate, quiet places by himself. He withdrew, right? You might hear people talk about things like having a prayer closet. It doesn't necessarily have to be a closet, but do you have a place that you regularly go where you commit yourself to personal, quiet, intentional prayer? 
We also prayed, not just alone in quiet or desolate places. He also prayed for the purpose of teaching his disciples how to pray. So he prayed in the presence of others. He prayed in Matthew chapter 6, we see the, is where we have you know, what most people commonly known refer to as the Lord's Prayer. And he models for his disciples how it is to pray. But one of the things we have to say anytime we bring up the Lord's Prayer is this was not Jesus saying you must pray this. It was not a prescription of what must be prayed when we pray. But rather it was a description of how we pray when we pray. Right? We take a a posture or a position of reverence, and we're going to see this, before God. We recognize who He is. We recognize who we are. Maybe we need to, to confess areas that need to be dealt with in our lives as we enter into His presence. He doesn't take sin lightly, and neither should we. And then we are invited to bring our petitions before Him. So Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, is not to be how we must pray, but, or what we must pray, rather, but it's an example of how we can pray. Okay, But Jesus prayed privately and publicly. Again, the point is, prayer was a vital part of the life of Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want us to look together at just one specific demonstration of Christ praying, and I want to make some observations from it. And I want you to know as we begin, um, these are going to be a little... um, I don't like to use the word generic because generic comes with the connotation of cheapening something, okay? But what I might say is, as we look at this this morning, and we'll look at examples of this, this is kind of like a 30,000-foot view, okay? That's a better way to phrase it than generic. And there's, there's times and examples when we can really zero it in on, and we'll touch on some of that. But just know that this morning, I want to look at a prayer of Jesus and take uh, a 30,000-foot view and take a couple principles from his prayer that can, I think, really help us and guide us as we pray. Now, John chapter 17, your Bible probably has a heading that says something like the high priestly prayer or the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And right before we get to John 17, what might be the most well-known prayer of Jesus We finished chapter 16 with seeing that, once again, he was teaching his disciples. He had been with his disciples, and they had left the upper room, and they're out walking, and then they separate Jesus, right? He brings this encouragement to them, because there in the end of John 16 is where Jesus says, you know, listen, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. And so Jesus is speaking very candidly. And very openly with his disciples, all of whom, by the way, were killed for their faith in Jesus. That's not to say that if we follow Jesus, we too will be killed for our faith in Jesus. But the disciples, as they walked with Jesus, and they talked with Jesus, and they learned from Jesus, and they saw what Jesus endured, and then they saw Jesus overcome death through the resurrection, they counted the cost. And they knew that the cost of walking like Jesus could very well be their lives. But they did it anyways. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but why do we walk as Jesus walked, even in a world 
in which we will surely have trouble because Jesus has overcome the world. And so Jesus has left his disciples with this encouragement that he has overcome the world and therefore they too will overcome the world. Okay? But as he issues this encouragement to them, warning, exhortation slash encouragement, he then goes into prayer. And so I want to read our text together. Uh, John 17 begins like this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he's done telling his disciples, it's going to be difficult, but persevere, I've overcome the world. It says he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have gave to me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. It seems odd to me, though it might be appropriate, to pray immediately after reading a prayer of Jesus. And his prayer really is simple. My time has come. I'm leaving this world. Those you have given to me, I have kept. I have showed them your love. They have seen your love in me. They've been commissioned to go out and to share that love with others. 
And so, God, I'm praying for them in this hour because they're stuck in this world. And I just finished telling them that the world will hate them because it hates me. And so, God, I'm praying that you, Father, I'm asking that you would protect them from the evil one. Not that you would take them out of this world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. I pray also, God, for those whom are yet to be brought into the fold. He prays what? Ultimately, that they would be one with him just as he is one with the Father. The great high priestly prayer of Jesus. What do we see modeled by Jesus? What does Jesus demonstrate for you and I? What is it that we can glean from this prayer? And again, I always say this thing, there's, there could be other things taken from it. There could be other prayers that we could look at that might model some other things for us. But there's three things I want to give you this morning specifically from the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus prayed with reverence. Jesus prayed with reverence. Again, I want to, I'm going to read the first couple of verses again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. You see, when Jesus begins this high priestly prayer, And he's praying with reverence or he's praying reverently before God. His reverence comes out of recognizing the fact that God is sovereign. That is to say that God is in control over all things. Reverence is defined as a a deep respect for someone or something. And that that respect is manifest in action. All right? So if, if, if we say that we revere someone or we have reverence for someone or something, but the actions of our lives do not demonstrate that, then the reality would be that we really don't have reverence for that someone or something. And Jesus, he prays with great reverence for the Father. And he prays recognizing the fact that he is over all things. The actions of Christ's life combined with the the prayer that we see here show just how much reverence Jesus had for the Father. We know on this side of history that Jesus had reverence for the Father because of the life that he lived, because ultimately all the things that he done, uh, that he did, excuse me, primarily sacrificing his life, being perfectly faithfully obedient to the will of God. It's because he believed God was sovereign over all things, including life and death. And the way that Jesus prays speaks to this recognition or this reverence of the sovereignty of God. And this is where I would submit to you this morning, the Christian life begins. Not in the sense of a beginning point, but in practice. Walking as Jesus walked is going to begin from a position of reverence or awe for who God is and what God has accomplished through Christ. You will not worship someone you do not adore. You will not live for the glory of one you are not in awe of. 
Jesus lived his life in reverence for the Father. And if you don't have reverence or respect, I like that word when we think about reverence, right? We, we pay our respects. If you don't have reverence or respect for God, you will struggle in this life as a professing follower of God. Because without reverence for who God is and what God has done, he's nothing more than an add-on to your life. And there's a huge difference between the sovereign God of the universe being an add-on to your life and being the Lord of your life. And you will awe and revere the one whom is the Lord of your life. And so one of the things that we've, we talk about, you hear me reference in a lot of different areas as it pertains to the Christian life, is we must have a growing reverence of God. Okay? You didn't revere God to the height of your reverence when you trusted Jesus. The truth is, you could spend every waking minute of your life seeking to exhaust the greatness of God in order that you might have appropriate reverence for Him, and at the end of your life, you will have not reached the pinnacle. But nonetheless, the life of a following believer of Jesus is to be lived in awe or reverence of who God is. So we must be growing in this reverence. Much like we, you hear me talk about, we must be growing in our knowledge of God's word. We must be growing in our habits of grace. And so as we think about growing in reverence in the awe of God, or and in the awe of God, Jesus' prayer here in John 17 is a great example of what it looks like to have reverence for the Father. Just foundationally, Jesus understands that God has authority, or as we've said, sovereignty over all things. The hour has come, we see in verse 1. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Because you have given Him, that is Jesus, recognizing that His authority over flesh has come from the Father. He says you've given Him authority over all flesh. For what purpose? To give eternal life to those whom the Father has given to him. You see, the authority of Christ has come from the Father who holds authority over all things. And Christ rightly recognizes that nothing comes to him apart from the Father sovereignly giving it to him. Jesus rightly recognizes the Father's authority over eternity as well. After he said, you've given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life, he says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. What is eternal life? That mankind would know God and Jesus whom he sent. And God has given all that is necessary for mankind to know him and Jesus whom he sent. God is the definer of eternal life, and God is the giver of eternal life. I don't know of anything else that screams sovereign authority than being the one who defines eternal life and the one who gives eternal life. And he has chosen to give it to whom he will, and even Jesus recognizes this through his prayer. 
In verse 6, he says, I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And perhaps the greatest demonstration of reverence for God is recognizing that we are not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. We ultimately do not exist for our purposes and for our own glory. We exist for the purposes and the glory of God. And this is the greatest, like, if you want to try to determine today whether or not you have a proper reverence and awe of who God is, then examine the decisions you made over the last week and determine whether they were more about you or about God. And you will quickly find who you believe the authority in your life is. Jesus knew and understood that the people God gave to him and even him himself did not belong to himself, that he belonged to the Father. John 17, 4. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. You see, the work of Jesus was glorifying the Father. But then the Father glorified Jesus and raising him from the dead, but subsequently was also glorifying himself. Jesus understood that recognizing or having reverence for a sovereign authority meant that he knew he was not his own. Paul says if you're in Christ, that you have been bought with a price. That's why when you, when you hear, uh, you know, biblical language like redemption, you've been redeemed. That means that you've been bought back. And that's why Paul would say that you've been bought with a price. Your Christian life, when, you're, when you trust Christ, and you talk about Scripture in Christ, we're free. Well, we're not free to be to ourselves, We're freed from the penalty and the bondage of sin in order that we might live for the glory of God. These are two totally different things, right? And Jesus understood and revered the one who was sovereign over all things. Again, in looking at verse 4, he says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do. He recognized. I mean, think about this. The whole purpose of Jesus being on this planet was to carry out the will of the Father, whatever that meant. Now, he knew what it meant. You know, most often, and we have to be careful because this is true, but it can get lost, okay? You ask somebody, why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, for my sins. That's true. But first... It was because it was the will of the Father. The will of the Father was to crush the Son for the forgiveness of the sins of mankind. The will of the Father was to pour out His wrath on the Son of God in order that our iniquities might be accounted for. And so while, yes, it's true that Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive sins, it was primarily, it was first about the will of His Father. That's why he said, if there be any way for this cup to pass, let it be. But not my will, yours. And so Jesus knew his whole purpose in being on this planet was to carry out the will of the Father, whatever it meant. And he knew what it meant. Still, he did it. 
both all the things prior to this point and all the things that would follow from this point. He knew what they meant. He knew what his life pointed to. He knew what the end result was. If you and I are going to have prayer lives that are reverential toward the God of the universe, then we must recognize his sovereignty over all things in this life and the next including and especially our lives. We don't have a vibrant prayer life to the one we don't revere. Oftentimes we don't pray, and I'm guilty of this. We don't pray like we should because we think we can do it ourselves. But we ought to pray in reverence to the God of the universe as we saw in our call to worship, because we have been invited because of Jesus into the very presence, the throne room of God, to make our petitions known to him. Jesus prayed in reverence or with reverence. But he didn't just pray in reverence. Jesus prayed, what I, what I would say, with authenticity as well. He prayed with authenticity because effective prayer as modeled by Jesus, was real. Okay, effective prayer is real. And we see that. We see that modeled by Jesus in verses 13 through 18. And I would submit to you this morning that one of the most authentic things that we can do is recognize the influence of someone or something over us or someone else. Okay? When Christ prays for his followers, as we've read and we've examined, he authentically recognizes the ability of the devil to control this world and its systems and to deter believers. Jesus does not pray with a facade. Jesus does not pray as though believers are strong enough, smart enough, well enough, good enough to overcome the devil themselves. In fact, what he prays demonstrates the exact opposite of that. Father, keep them from the devil. Because he will be after them. He will seek to deter them. And Jesus says here in our text, uh, in in verse 13, where he talks about he's, he's coming to them, but he came to the world that they may have his joy filled in them or fulfilled in them. Right? This is why Jesus came, that we may have joy we, say, we see it in, 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 in the Gospel of John and that our joy may be complete. And he says here in his prayer that as he comes to the Father, he does so that they may have his fullest joy. But Jesus also, being authentic in his prayer, acknowledges a very real reality. There is one who hates followers of Jesus. And the chief aim of that one is to rob followers of Jesus of their joy in order that they might do just like Adam and Eve did in the garden in the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis chapter 3, that they might say, did God really say? Because if Jesus came to offer joy and joy to the fullest, my life may not have joy. 
And so as I start to lack joy, as my life starts to look less and less like God and who God is and what God has called for me, guess what I begin to do? Question God. I doubt his goodness. I doubt his character. I doubt his love. I doubt his sovereignty, his authority over all things. Does God really love me? Does God really have authority over this situation? You see, Jesus prays with authenticity. He prays, Father, keep them from the evil one whom will seek to devour them. That's what Peter would tell us. He says, be sober-minded and alert. This is Peter. Be sober-minded and be alert because the devil is lurking about like a roaring lion, lion seeking whom he may devour. The devil is not some far-off abstract thing. The devil also doesn't make you do anything, okay? You need to know that right up front. While the influence of the devil is real, we don't get to say, well, the devil made me do it. No, James is very clear that sin is manifest in our lives. It gives birth from it within. We lust and then we did not have, so we took, we stole Sin comes from in here. We're not made to do it by the devil. But the devil's influence is very real. He can cause us to question, to challenge. And so Jesus prays that the Father, in authenticity, would keep his disciples from the evil one. And that is why, in as much as Jesus acknowledges the devil, as he acknowledges his hatred of believers and influence over this world, Jesus also prays that the Father would not just put this shield up that says, oh, the devil can never get to believers. But he asks the Father to do something in in the lives of those who are his disciples. In verse 17, he says, sanctify them in your truth. You want to know how to fight off the devil? Know the word of God. When you're tempted or challenged to question God, to question his goodness, to question his character, the only thing that will resolve your questions and your concerns in those situations is what the word of God says about God, who he is, and demonstrates over and over and over his faithfulness of character. He says, sanctify them in the truth. God, your word is the truth. If we're gonna be authentic, And if we're going to have an authentic prayer life as Christ did, then we have to see the relationship between being authentic and the Word of God. There is a relationship between our authenticity or the vibrancy of our personal relationship with Christ and God's Word. We cannot have a vibrant, growing relationship with the God of the universe while we neglect his word. And far too often we look around and we say, we don't understand why God's doing this or why God's doing that or why this is this way or why that's that way. And I don't know why I can't do this or I can't do that. But we don't have any idea what God's word says. We like the parts that say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins but we don't like the parts that say, be holy because I'm holy. If we're going to be authentic and walk as Jesus walked, we must have a growing knowledge of this. I didn't say you must know it all from, from front to back today or tomorrow. 
I didn't say you got the, the six-week time period from salvation to know cover to cover God's word. But be honest with yourself this morning. Is your knowledge of God's word growing? Because you cannot have an authentic prayer life and you cannot have an authentic relationship with Jesus if your knowledge of his word is not growing. And that's why Jesus says, God, sanctify them in your truth. Sanctify them, set them apart with your truth. That's how they're going to resist the devil. And that truth that you sanctify them with, Father, is your word. Because you see, followers of Christ have been sent into the world just as he was. A number of weeks ago, you recall, Pastor Aaron preached from Philippians chapter 2. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he thought equality with God not something to be grasped or held on to. And Paul tells the church at Philippi, he set that aside, he took on flesh, he became a man, and he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was sent out into the world. And believers are sent out into the world. And if you are trying to survive as a follower of Jesus in the world without the truth, you will not make it. I can't be any more blunt. I can't be any more black and white. I can't be any more straightforward. If you try to live the Christian life without the word of God, you will fail. You will be overcome by the world. You will be drowned under the cares of everything that's going on around us. And you will succumb to the temptations of the evil one. Because if we don't know God's word... When the questions come up, they're going to get implanted and they're going to start to give root. And that lust or that disbelief, it gives root to sin. We have to be sanctified in the truth that is the word of God. So as we've said, we can't be authentic. We can't have an authentic prayer life. But even as Joy said here, I want you to understand something. Without the truth, your life is going to lack joy. Contrary to what a lot of people would tell us and what a lot of things you might read or hear, like God is not concerned with your happiness. The Bible does not talk about happiness. The Bible talks about joy. In the word of God, Jesus himself says that he came, that, that his joy might be filled, or that the people might be filled with his joy. Joy is a fruit of the spirit, okay? It's not a circumstantial, emotional feeling, It's something that you have because you are in Christ and you are grounded in the word of God and because you have a growing knowledge of the truth, primarily the truth that though the world hates Jesus and hates you, he overcome the world and you in him will also overcome the world. You see, that's a joy the world can't take. Happiness the world can't take. That's why church is floundering so much today. Because in our churches, we're more concerned with happiness than what God's Word teaches. God's Word doesn't teach happiness. 
And our lives will lack joy if we're not growing in truth. And if we're not growing in truth, we cannot be authentic. We cannot follow Jesus as he would call us to. We cannot have an authentic prayer life. We must be growing in the truth in order that we can pray and live with authenticity as Jesus did. And this leads us to our last point. I would submit to you, though, that this is just more of a summary of this prayer as a whole, okay? Um, And if we want to have real influence in our prayers, like if we really want the Spirit to lead us as we pray to do great things, then we we need to do this. We need to understand that Jesus prayed with specificity. You can read through this whole prayer, and we won't read it again. But over and over and over, Jesus prayed for specific things. Jesus didn't pray, I I will use the word generic here. Jesus didn't pray generic prayers or cheat prayers. Another phrase that I I, I, I use because I think that we're very guilty of this today is Jesus didn't pray safe prayers. Now this is a hard reality, right? But... But when we see Jesus pray in Scripture, he's very specific, right? And we pray specifically because it helps us to know the will of God, right? If we, if we limit our prayers in a, a general sense or in a safe sense to, God, help me know what to do, I'm not making fun of anybody that may pray that, okay? But I want you to understand when you pray in an ambiguous sense, the best answer you can get is an ambiguous one. And God's will is not ambiguous. So if we pray, God, help me to know what to do, it's going to be very difficult to discern what God desires in our lives. What if we pray instead of, God, help me know what to do? What if we pray, God, give me the strength to walk through this open door until you close it and give me the wisdom to know that it's closed? What does it look like for this door to be closed? One example of that is when we, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. I want to try to make this practical. I remember when we came here, this process started, it's just been about eight years ago. And, um, you know, we went through a lot of things. And one of the things that we talked about was how do we know? How do we know if, if like, obviously God has opened a door just because of the circumstances of how things have unfolded. And so now this process has begun. And so how do we know? Is it this? Is it that? Is it this? Is it that? And I finally looked at my wife and I said, we will walk through the doors until he closes them. And he didn't close any. Here we are. But maybe a closed door would have been, you know, they vote to call a new pastor. Well, if the vote didn't pass, that was a closed door. It would have been clear. We knew, God, that was your will for this situation. And we're going to be okay with that. But you pray specifically. And when you pray specifically, it gives the follower of Christ the ability to gauge what is happening. Again, I don't want to pick on anybody, and I'm not saying this with anybody in mind or anything. I just know over my years of being around Bible college and in the church, I, I, we, we've, oftentimes when we pray for people's salvation, we pray stuff like, God, please save them. God, please save them. And I don't want to make light of that. I think that that's a good prayer to pray. But when we think about God's will, and we think about 
safe prayers or being specific in our prayers, and we look at the Word of God, can we pray that God would work through difficulty? We say, God, many of you know I have a brother who's in prison. Unless things change, he's got 22 years to go. Okay, he'll be over 60 when he gets out. Many of you know that. If you didn't, now you do. And uh, early on when my brother went into prison, we, we, my, my brother and I were never close growing up, but um, when he first went to prison, we were able to start kind of having a little bit of dialogue. And my brother to this day maintains his innocence. Um, he's doing all kinds of crazy stuff, right? He currently has an appeal sitting on the desk of the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Now, my brother and I first started dialoguing after he went to prison. He maintained his innocence. He maintained his innocence. He maintained his innocence. I told him this. I said, John, I said, if you're innocent, I have no reason not to believe you. There's no advantage to you lying about it sitting there now to lie to me. I said, if you're innocent, then that tells me that you're there for some reason other than serving the time for the punishment or, you know, fulfilling the punishment that you've been given for the crime that you were found guilty of. And I said, and John, and this is easy for me to say right on this side of the desk. I said, but John, from where I sit, I said, it's, it's, it's got to do with your salvation. For years, John, we have prayed that God would do whatever he needed to do to captivate your heart. You lived a life of complete immorality, chasing any and every lust of the flesh that could be dreamt up. And John, if you're innocent, I want nothing more than for you to get out of prison. But John, prison, but John I will pray that you sit there until you see your need for Jesus. Do we pray safe prayers? Or do we call on the sovereign God of the universe to do things that cannot help but bring him glory? Do we pray for miracles? And I'm not trying to get all fanciful and superficial, okay, and, and all crazy in the spirit. But Hebrews 4 says... Enter into the throne room with God. How? With confidence and in boldness. God, please do this. But your will, not mine. God, I'm praying that you, I am praying for you to move a mountain. Cure this cancer. That's what I'm unashamedly asking you to do, God. Heal this person. Heal this situation. But God, help me to be understanding and knowing and trusting of whatever you do. You may not save this person. You may not cure this cancer. But God, help me to know that you're good no matter what. Do we pray with specificity? Or do we pray generic things that never challenge us to, to, to grow deeper in our relationship with Christ? Do we pray prayers that call us to trust God? Because I don't have to tell you how this ended for Jesus. It's not many chapters later. There's only 21 in the whole gospel of John that Jesus is arrested, illegally tried, condemned to death, and murdered. Jesus didn't pray safe prayers, but as he prayed specific prayers, he prayed, God, help me to trust your will and help me, God, to know what that is. I want you guys to know this morning 
that I believe God's word would want you to know that it's okay to be specific when you pray. God, I recognize that you're sovereign over all things, and God, I'm hurting. God, I'm scared. God, I'm struggling with this, and I need to be real and honest and transparent about this situation. And God, I don't know how it's going to turn out, but of all of those things that I may be feeling, God, what I need to do more than anything is trust you through them. So God, help me to this end. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to acknowledge that you don't know everything and that you are not sovereign over everything, right? That's where we began this. By recognizing that God alone is sovereign. And it's okay to pray with specificity to the sovereign God of the universe. You want to know God's will? Be close to him. You want to be close to God? Pray in sincerity with specificity, recognizing that he, is, that he alone is to be revered. And be authentic. You can't be close to God or claim to be close to God while staying afar from him. This is why Hebrews 4 says, let us then draw near to the throne of grace. You want to walk as Jesus walked? Pray as Jesus prayed. Revere God. Be authentic. Be specific. God desires to hear from us even though he already knows And the more we commune with him and the closer we draw to him, the more we'll have that joy Jesus talked about and the more we'll know the will of God and the more that we'll know that we're walking in step with him. Let's pray. Father God, it is, as we've already said, just a tremendous privilege to enter into your presence. To consider, God, just the truth that you are sovereign over all things. God, there is none like you. There never has been and there never will be. And even, in, even though that is true, God, you invite us as we are into your presence. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would challenge our hearts. Challenge my heart, God, start with me. That I would see prayer not as just this abstract idea or thing that is a, just a part of the Christian life. But God, that I would see it for what it is. Communion with the sovereign, holy God of the universe. And that in that prayer, God, I would strive to be authentic and specific that I might be led by the Spirit, God, and that I might walk as Jesus walked. Work in our hearts and in our lives today. Draw us near to you, God. Rid us of our apathy. Rid us of our desire and willingness to stay afar away and to look curiously, questioning and wondering and doubting. Draw us near to you today, God that we might know you, and that we might walk as Jesus walked, and that we might live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.